So I want, as it were, to enlarge the context a bit. I'm not going to speak just of the Buddha and the Guru. I'm going to speak of four, as it were, personalities, or if you like, four archetypes. I'm going to say, first of all, something about what is known as the Manu. Then I'm going to say something about the Buddha. And then I'm going to say something about the Guru. And then I'm going to say something about the Terton. Whatever that may be, you'll discover in a few moments if you don't already know. So, first of all, let me say a few words about the Manu. We're here, as it were, preparing the ground. What does one mean by the Manu? I don't know how many of you have heard this, this word or this term before. The Manu, M-A-N-U, is of course a Sanskrit word. Let me get into it, let me try to explain it in this way. Let me go back to my days in India with the ex-untouchable Buddhists. Most of you know that I spent quite a bit of time amongst these ex-untouchable Buddhists in, in India. And uh, it was shortly after the mass conversion of these people to Buddhism, under the leadership of uh, Dr. B. R. Ambedkar. He died, of course, six weeks after that mass conversion ceremony, and I spent a lot of time going from village to village, trying to teach these people, or some of them at least, the Dharma, inasmuch as they did not call themselves Buddhists. So I took the view that they might as well know what Buddhism actually was, since they called themselves Buddhists, and make some effort to practice it. So I was going around from village to village, and town to town, and city to city, sometimes for the whole of the winter period, giving lectures, uh, giving initiations, uh, performing ceremonies of various kinds, especially wedding ceremonies, which were in great demand. People wanting to have real, genuine, 100% Buddhist weddings. So in this way, I spent a lot of time uh, each winter. And I used to go, among other places, to Bombay. And in Bombay, I had not only lots of ex-untouchable Buddhist friends, I had other friends of various communities. And in particular, I had a friend who was originally from Poland. He was a Pole. By birth, he was a Polish Jew. And he was a little old man, just like a gnome. Huh? Uh, he was only about four feet six high. He was about 65 at that time. He had a little bald head. And uh, though he'd been born as a Jew, he'd become a Catholic. He'd become a Jesuit priest. But eventually he'd given it all up. He'd come to India. He'd become a follower of Mahatma Gandhi. He was very much into Kadi. He wore very thick white homespun and he eventually became a follower of Krishnamurti and he was a great friend of mine. (laughs) He had a rather caustic tongue and he used to be very fond of giving me good advice. (laughs) At that time I was still in my early and middle thirties. He was about 65, and therefore he considered himself fully qualified and in fact entitled to give me as much good advice as I needed. (laughs) So I was actually one day in Bombay staying with him in his very beautiful flat, which he shared with a Parsi lady even more eccentric than himself, (laughs) who was aged about 80, aged about 80, who was also a follower of Krishnamurti. So I came there and I spent a few days and I was a bit tired. I was a bit tired after all these uh, journeyings from village to village and all these lectures I'd been giving. So 
uh, Morris, his name was Morris. <laughs> Morris. <laughs> as soon as I'd been given a cup of tea, Morris said in his usual fatherly way, he said, Sangharachita, you're wasting your time. <laughs> he said, you're wasting your time hmm? trying to teach Buddhism to these people. So he couldn't, you know, uh, couldn't resist the temptation to be a little caustic as it were. He said, in fact, you're wasting your time trying to be a Buddha for these people and teach them Buddhism. He said, what they really need is a Manu. Hmm? <laughs> what is a Manu? <laughs> Well, I didn't need to ask Morris what a Manu was, because I knew very well <laughs> what a Manu was. And I knew exactly what he meant. And I must say, after thinking it over, I, I, I inclined to agree with him. <laughs> but you'll, of course, some of you be wondering, <laughs> those of you who haven't been properly brought up, you'll be wondering... <laughs> What, what a manu is. I mean, is it some kind of Indian sweetmeat or is it a musical instrument or, or what is it? Huh? So let me just explain. A manu hmm, is a primeval lawgiver. Hmm? Uh, according to, to Hindu, or perhaps I should say according to general Indian uh, cosmological, cosmogenetical belief, at the beginning of each world period, when the human race, as it were, reappears, huh? uh, they don't quite believe in Darwinian evolution, you'll, you'll gather from this. Huh? But when the human race reappears, there reappears with the human race at the very dawn of what we would call history, thousands and thousands of years ago, a great lawgiver who lays down the basis of society. And he is called a Manu. Hmm? Uh, Manu is supposed to be connected etymologically with Manas, which means mind, huh? um, which is also connected with uh, Manusha, which is human being. So these are all interconnected. Huh? Uh, a Manusha, a human being, is one endowed with mind. Huh? And a Manu is similarly one who is, as it were, archetypally human. He's the archetypal human being, so to speak the one archetypally endowed with mind, uh, the lawgiver who guides the whole of society, who lays the basis for a positive uh, social life, who lays the basis, we may say, of the positive group. Uh, so you have the Manu right at the beginning. So why is this? Why does the Manu come right at the beginning according to general Indian belief? Uh? Well, he comes right at the beginning for a very good for a very important reason, which is that humanity needs him. Humanity needs society. Humanity needs social organization. But that social organization must be on the basis of certain, not just social, but moral, ethical, ultimately spiritual principles. In other words, the whole of social life Social life in all its aspects must be so organized 
as to make the spiritual life possible, or even to prepare people for the spiritual life. So this is the function of the manu. He is the lawgiver. So what my friend was really meaning, and what I really agreed with was, until you've got society organized in such a way that it reflects at least ethical values, huh? until society can prepare the individual human being ethically, there's not much point in preaching, so to speak, very lofty, purely spiritual, even transcendental ideals. Huh? You need the positive group, so to speak, to use that own terminology, before you can have the spiritual community. Hmm? You need the FWBO before you can have the WBO, huh? at least historically, if not in <coughs> principle. Huh? So this is what he was getting at, and this, this, with this that I was very much inclined to agree. In fact, it, it had so happened that I was in fact doing this uh, uh, to a certain extent in the course of my work with these ex-untouchables. I was, in a sense, acting as a sort of lawgiver because... I spoke about you know, weddings, and they used to come to me and ask, well, how should we perform the Buddhist wedding ceremony? Yeah? So I used to say, well, don't do this and don't do that, but do this and do that. So in a way, I was acting as a sort of lawgiver. It had nothing to do with the spiritual path directly. It had nothing to do with the attainment of enlightenment, far from it. But that was, as it were, a necessary basis in society, in social life in even family life, uh, preparing the way for the emergence of the sort of positive, happy, healthy human being who could then, as an individual, direct himself to the spiritual life and the spiritual path. Uh, so this is the function of the manu. So one has, according to the Indian belief, the Indian tradition, at the very beginning of things, this manu, this lawgiver emerging uh, and laying down the laws uh, governing society from the ethical point of view, laws which will make it possible for society, for human beings as members of a positive group to live in such a way that later on, when a higher transcendental teaching is proclaimed, they're able to understand it and to follow it. Huh? So first comes the Manu. The Manu, according to this sort of teaching, prepares the way for the Buddha. And if we, if we read the Pali scriptures, huh, which are, the, the, in a sense, the oldest uh, scriptures, the oldest Buddhist scriptures, which give us uh, the best picture of what it was actually like uh, in the Buddha's day in India when the Buddha lived and preached or taught, one of the things that we notice is what a high standard of social and cultural huh, life there was at that time. Hmm? How harmonious the social life seems to be. How dignified their, their religious life was. How courteous people were. With what courtesy they discussed and argued, even when they differed very, very drastically about their religious opinions. Eh? So one has the impression that there was a very high, a very noble degree of social organization. A very pure, a very noble eh, cultural life. And it was because the way had been prepared, the basis had been laid, eh, that the Buddha was able to gain such a ready hearing. If the Buddha had appeared amidst, say, a tribe of savages, he would not have gained a very ready hearing. His teaching was very subtle. It presupposed a great social and cultural development. So the Manu, so to speak, prepares the way for the Buddha. Yeah? So this is what we mean by the Manu. Hmm? And as I said, he prepares the way for the Buddha. Uh, 